Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Hello, hello. Welcome back from your weekend. This is Colin. Uh, And as is always the case on Monday and has been the case for many, many, many weeks and months now, we are going to spend part of today's show talking about the state of epidemiology or immunology or virology or one of those disciplines as it relates to the COVID-19 or just public health uh, as it uh, relates to the COVID-19 pandemic. A little bit later in the show, we're going to talk to Jelani Cobb, uh, one of America's really leading writers at this point and theorists on black issues. He is part of he is the anchor of a new PBS Frontline documentary, which drops tomorrow, I believe, called Policing the Police. So uh, but right now we're very excited to to begin the show uh, with another guest that we have tried to get in the past. And I think we had her once and it was my fault. I had to cancel the show. But Jennifer Nuzzo is back, senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering and the Department of Epidemiology at the you you need about three breaths to say this at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She is the lead epidemiologist for the Johns Hopkins Testing uh, Insights Initiative. Welcome to our show, Doctor. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm just going to ask you kind of a a crude uh, top line question here. I mean, obviously, we're hearing Israel is going uh, into a second lockdown. France is really having to do a kind of a gut check about its upticks. Uh, We're seeing uh, upticks in hotspots all over the country on that terrific Johns Hopkins uh, interactive site. Um, So uh, what's the state of the disease right now? I'm sure it's it's it exists in lots of different pieces and parts. uh, But as you step back and look at the big picture. How's the war going? Yeah, well, the state of the disease is it's still very much here, unfortunately. Um, You know, I think uh, many people had sort of hoped that after a few months, we could return to life that we once knew, uh, return to normal. And unfortunately, that's not really going to be the case. Um, You know, still the majority of us remain susceptible to this virus. And um, at this point, the best tool we have to protect ourselves is to maintain distance from people. And the extent to which we're able to continue to do that will help keep the case numbers low, but it won't make the virus uh, go away for sure. So unfortunately, our, our need to worry about this virus uh, remains. Right. So uh, it starts with us. Wash your hands, wear your mask, keep your distance. Uh, but there are a lot of other moving parts to this, too. And one of them, since you are a part of the testing initiative, we should talk a, a little about Um I, there's so many things to say about this, but for starters, one of the one of the things that you use to base the conclusion you just stated is on testing data. But testing data in this country is still all over the place. There's no real standardized uh, system for doing it. States report it differently and idiosyncratically, depending on how they choose to interpret numbers. In a second or two, maybe we'll talk about uh, political interference from the White House about how uh, testing data is reported and understood. But, you know, for you as a scientist trying to answer a question like the one I just asked you, one problem is the tools that you've been given to use seem flawed to me. But but how does it look to you? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say um, overall, um, we have fairly good tools and our ability to figure out how many people have COVID-19 um, is fairly decent. I, I say that because there's a lot of kind of conspiracy theories out there that we're mm -hmm. overcounting and um, that, you know, many of the people who have died and it's been attributed to COVID that that's, that's an overestimate. Um, that's really not the case. I mean, the way that you get identified as a case of COVID is basically that you get tested with in this case is usually a laboratory-based test. Um, we're not really just kind of looking at people and saying, you look like you have COVID, I'm gonna mark you down. Um, where scientists do get sort of picky is um, how, uh, first of all, everybody's ability to get tested is not the same everywhere in the country. So in some places it's fairly easy and you'll get tested and you'll get your test results um, in a relatively short period of time, which is important so that you can know what to do. If you are in fact positive, you can stay home and make sure you don't infect people. But in other parts of the country, um, it may be hard to get to find a test. It may be hard to get that test result back in a amount of time that's useful to, to make decisions. And so that's one of the things that um, scientists are really frustrated about is just how we can use these important tools um, is not the same across the country. And then there are also small nitpicky things about um, certain uh, metrics that we use to judge how much testing we're doing. Um, there's this uh, term called positivity, which you may have heard about. Um, it's gotten increasingly more attention in, in recent months. And um, it's basically uh, what proportion of tests being done come back positive. Um, the way states report that number and the way that they do the calculation um, differs and what tests they lump into that calculation differs. We're not talking huge differences, not enough to really change our understanding of COVID-19, but enough that you probably don't want to necessarily hold states right next to each other and say this one is 0.1% higher than the other one and that's bad. Um, so there's more work we need to do to improve our accuracy, but for the most part, I don't want to leave people the impression that, you know, we have absolutely no idea what's going on in the country. We very much do know that there's a lot of COVID, unfortunately, mm -hmm. and the situation is probably going to get worse before it gets better. Right. You know, I, I've had to learn as much as I could about epidemiology over the last six months. Before that, I knew a lot about political polling, and I'm starting to see some connections between the two. I always tell people, one one data point from political polling is useless to me. If you tell me, George, that Joe Biden is five points ahead in this poll, that doesn't really tell me anything. I need a lot of data points and I need trend lines, you know, and if I can look at trend lines, if I can look at which direction uh, is this candidate going in, well, in similar kinds of polls over a continuum of, continuum of time, I can tell something. And it seems that way also with yeah. uh, epidemiology and with positives and stuff like that, you know, all of the inconsistencies that you just cited can be washed out a little bit if you can look at trend lines, I would assume. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you're, you can be an epidemiologist now. Um, that's very much what we do. And I, I always stress to people that no one data point is going to tell you everything you need to know. Typically in epidemiology, we look at a bunch of different data and we look at them at once and we kind of hold them all next to each other. And, you know, in the in the totality of all the data, we try to triangulate our way to the truth. But for the most part, we do pay attention to trend lines and trend lines are far more important to us than than absolute numbers. And um, when we see things ticking in the wrong direction, that's um, probably the thing we want to act upon rather than the absolute number itself. Right. Now, there's another aspect of this, and we've tried to cover it in the past, and it's a hard thing to explain to people, uh, although 
we might have succeeded once or twice. I'm going to use a different analogy now. So the way that I understand it, so we're using, obviously, most of the time, this PCR test. It's a, a diagnostic test. And, and in a way, based on what I've learned from a lot of reading, it's a little bit like a smoke detector that's really good at detecting really tiny little wisps of smoke that often come from a fire that's already out, um, and, you know, or almost out. It's good at detecting the embers of things. But it's maybe not as good at, at detecting the grease fire that's sitting on your stove 10 feet away from you. That, that, that there's a way in which the PCR seems to, you know, really pick up people who may be at the end of their uh, transmission cap capacity. Uh, what we're often, often do want to know uh, are the people who are infected, transmitting, and asymptomatic. And it seems like we don't catch those people as well with the PCR as we might with a broader kind of screening tool? Well, so um, sort of. I, I think one of the complaints about PCR is that it's a very sensitive test. And because it's so sensitive, um, it can pick things, uh, people who have um, smaller amounts of viral RNA. Mm. We don't know necessarily from that data when we see that there are smaller amounts, if it's because somebody is just at the start of their infection, or maybe they had an infection a month ago and, and didn't know it. So it is true that um, you can test positive on a PCR test and not be contagious because maybe you had it and were contagious at one point, but now are no longer. That's a harder thing to tell with PCR. Um, but uh, if you test positive, it's enough to act upon um, for sure. Um, there are other types of tests that um, aren't the same as PCR and um, they're less sensitive. And some people may say, well, it's less sensitive. That means you're going to miss those people who are just starting out in their infection. Um, and that's that's true. And that's a potential worry. Um, but um, also you may miss finding those people who are now no longer contagious. So maybe that's a benefit that we have fewer sort of public health false positives. People say these other tests may be better because they're missing the tails. Maybe they're better uh, equipped to help us find the people we care most about, and those are the people who are mo most contagious. Um, my view is that both tools are necessary, and mm -hmm. both tools are important. And just like we never look to one data point, I don't think we want to pick one uh, diagnostic tool. I think we need screening tools um, to help us, particularly in settings where getting um, rapid results and maybe not worrying so much about the tails um, is really important. Uh, but I don't think we want to throw out PCR um, because chances are, if you're about to go through some medical treatment, you want to make sure that your test result is exactly what we think it is. So I think having both of these tools is really important and we just need to figure out the environments in which they're um, best used. And it seems as though um, we're going to have to get, I think there's a lot of people now, particularly because we're starting to hear these kind of short window descriptions of the arrival of vaccines. There are a lot of people who see that stuff, you know, and they think, well, so that's where this is all going to end. And wow, it seems like it's going to end pretty soon. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons to think that that's not the case. Uh, that, that first of all, yeah. you know, I mean, 
if, if efficacy gets judged at 50 percent uh, and 50 percent of the public takes uh, the vaccine, that's 25 percent of the people who've been vaccine, va- vaccinated you know, <laughs> months down the line. Uh, there are also questions about just, you know, how efficacious and safe these vaccines are going to be uh, if, if they're rushed into market. It seems as though no matter what we've got for a vaccine, even if we've got like a really good vaccine, we're going to need to do a lot of testing alongside it for quite a while. Absolutely. I mean, as much as I wish I could say that I see this problem of COVID as one lasting a few more months and then we get to go back on with our lives, I just unfortunately don't see that happening. I mean, even if the science works out completely in our favor that we find a vaccine that prevents, uh, you know, the vast majority of people that get it um, from, from that get vaccinated from becoming infected, um, it doesn't mean that it will fully protect everybody. Um, But even if it does protect nearly everybody who gets vaccinated, um, we still have to make the vaccine and making the vaccine at quantities that will change the trajectory of the epidemic. That's going to take quite some time. And the reality is, I think the science, I mean, we have no way of knowing if the science is going to give us that kind of vaccine. It's possible that we will have to take a vaccine that, you know, like others, the flu vaccine is a good example. It, um, just because you get vaccinated against flu doesn't mean that you won't get the flu. It's pretty good about keeping you out of the hospital and keeping you from dying. And with respect to COVID-19, that's, uh, I think that would be an enormous advantage if we could um, help people avoid those two really severe outcomes. Um, but, you know, it's going to take a while to, to, to get out there and to, to, um, to be distributed to everybody to make it. And, you know, even for vaccines with which we have ample supplies and and dedicated programs to vaccinating, I take measles, for example, we still deal with big measles outbreaks um, throughout the U.S. So um, I don't think we're going to escape worrying about COVID-19 for, for, you know, anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, the scale up that you referenced, we, we're at some point going to have to do a whole show about this. But, um, you know, obviously a ton of money been, has been put into this by the federal government, so much so that some of these companies have been able to build state-of-the-art facilities. Uh, and But there are issues of refrigeration chains. You know, some of these uh, vaccines need to be at, you know, ex- extremely low temperatures during their storage periods. There's a lot of things that could go wrong in the process of that. And then the other question is, you know, there are different kinds of immunity, right? There's kind of protective immunity versus sterilizing immunity. So you could vaccinate a bunch of healthcare workers in a way that would protect them uh, from an expression of the disease, but they actually might still be infectious if they don't have sterilizing immunity, which I assume is why we would want to keep testing them. Yeah, I mean, plus we're going to have to do, I mean, anytime we roll out a new product like this, but certainly, you know, in in this case, when we're still learning, we're going to have to do um, a fair amount of surveillance afterwards just to make sure that the vaccine is doing exactly what we think it's doing and that we don't have any problems. So the need to continue to test people and to conduct surveillance for this virus, uh, unfortunately, remain. Um. So um, with all of that in mind, let's talk um, just a little bit more about, well, so one thing that's kind of come up over the last 48 48 hours or so is the fact that despite all of this input of taxpayer money, the vaccine companies are a little choosy about what they tell people and what they don't tell people. And we're certainly dealing with a public health communication issue here. It's already clear that, you know, even people like me, I can't wait till flu shot day every year. I can't wait to go get my flu shot. I'm having a slightly different set of reactions to the process that I'm seeing unfolding here. Probably the more I know about it, the better. Anytime I hear that, you know, that that Moderna 
doesn't want to tell me something, uh, you know, that makes me a little bit nervous. And and you could sort of make the argument that, well, we gave you billions of dollars of public money. Maybe you should like tell us everything that you know about the process. What's your reaction? Yeah, I mean, I think we are in a really um, somewhat unique situation, um, both because, you know, of the public investment in the development of this product, as well as, um, unfortunately, the politicization of this whole situation. And when you can kind of conflate those things together, it creates a situation in which I can only imagine more communication is better. Um, you know, you can understand from companies' perspectives, there are data that emerge along the way, as with the development of any pharmaceutical product that, um, you know, we have to interpret as it comes in and try to understand. And I think the recent um, uh, halting of, of um, one of the, the trials in light of new data um, is, a, is a perfect example. That's not to be unexpected in the development, halting a, a trial when you when data come in that you need to understand is, I think, evidence of the safety mechanisms built in place working. But nonetheless, there is a need to explain that and a need to help people interpret that. And um, unfortunately, I don't think the companies are, are really the best equipped to do that. I think that's really something where we need um, strong uh, regulatory and oversight uh, uh, apparatus. And I think increasingly with the politicization, having some outside review uh, is is going to be helpful. Right. Um, I, I think people, you know, will need to feel comfortable with this vaccine in order to get it. I will tell you, I don't, I have no reason to worry at this point, but I, I do really worry that some of the reporting about this vaccine may have kind of poisoned people's opinions of it um, prematurely. Right. Or, I mean, a reasonable person is probably going to want to wait a little bit longer, you know, uh, rather than rush out and get it before, let's say, Election Day to pick up an arbitrary date. Um, so, yeah. And, and in terms of that politicization, I mean, increasingly in non-vaccine fronts, we have increasing reasons to worry. I mean, even reading over the weekend, we, we did a show a week or two ago, whenever it was, about this whole idea of convalescent plasma being kind of rushed past the uh, FDA's authorization process over the weekend. We have kind of an inside account where President Trump at one point calls Francis Collins of the NIH and says, make it happen today. It needs to happen, you know, right before the Republican National Convention uh, uh, starts uh, now we've got uh, other reports uh, about pressure from the White House on the CDC to, in effect, it seemed like kind of alter the way that some of the statistics you and I have just been discussing get reported so that they are that they align more completely with what the president has been saying about all this. I mean, this is like an epistemic crisis where, you know, facts start to be much more wobbly than we want them to be. Yeah, this is a really regrettable situation. I mean, you know, um, it's it's really short-sighted to think that you can message your way out of a pandemic. Now, I don't, I don't believe that the situation is as dire as maybe some of the reports have have made it. I, I do think that there has been um, political inquiries and perhaps review of scientific papers. Um, that possibly changed a tone of the language, but I don't have reason to believe that they fundamentally changed the science. Um, obviously, if new information comes out, you know, that's that's a different story. But even the perception that that's happening, I think, is unfortunate because it, it does erode confidence. And 
we have a situation where there are people who legitimately do not believe that this pandemic is happening. And that's a very unfortunate situation because it means that they're unable to to, to take some of the precautionary measures um, to make sure they or a loved one doesn't get infected. So I think it's really important that we try to preserve scientific integrity. We try to let the, the agencies um, do the work that they have um, decades of experience doing. And frankly, the U.S. science agencies are world-class. These are top-notch experts um, who are unmatched in their their technical abilities. And we just need to let them do the jobs that they, they know how to do. And even just the perception of intervention, unfortunately, um, makes it harder for them to do their jobs. Um, and I, I just don't see it ending well for any political leader that attempts to you know, get a handle on the situation by trying to, to censor the nation's scientists. It's just, it's not going to, it's not going to change facts, even if it changes the message. You know, um, you mentioned the, that group of people who don't even believe the, the pandemic is happening. Uh, I actually kind of monitor certain groups of them on social media. And it really is kind of an amazing thing. So here in Connecticut, one of the things, obviously, we have an incredibly low infection rate, incredibly low down to zero, essentially death rate. Uh, and we have like all the indices are, are really, really good. So the Connecticut version of those people, they say, well, open everything then. Look, look how low the numbers are. And you want to say, well, yeah, but the numbers are like 15 times as high uh, in other parts of the country. So that means the disease really exists and we can see what it's like when it gets really bad. Why are you objecting to the controls that we've put in since they have spared you the experience that's being had in other places? I mean, the, clearly the disease isn't made up. People are getting really sick uh, from it in the Dakotas and Iowa and places like that. But it's sort of weird. It's like the minute you get successful, you really hear from those people people you know uh, the, the minute the minute the disease gets down the number gets down to one percent on infection they start screaming open the bars which would seem to be yeah. kind of an odd thing to do yeah i mean this is this is the the paradox of public health the thing that we've always struggled against is that if we do our jobs well you don't know that we've done them <laughs> you know um that's the problem with prevention if uh, if if nobody knows who didn't get the disease, um, you know, and, and the efforts that were were taken, um, you know, I think the only thing I can say on that front, and I I am completely actually sympathetic to the position of people who want to reopen, who are really worried about the economic hardships and the social hardships. I mean, we've never this is an unprecedented situation in terms of. The level of restriction we have imposed upon people and um, the hardships that people have had to experience with very little support. You know, the, the financial um, uh, incentives for people are really, unfortunately, not there. And I think in, in a way that they, they should be. Um, but I, I guess what I point to is maybe other countries where we have that are ahead of us in terms of timing, you know, that they had success in bringing their their numbers down and then began to reopen. And now, you know, places like France are dealing with a resurgence that rivals their their worst of days. Um, so that's just unfortunately what we potentially have in store if we completely lift all restrictions. It had been my um, deep hope that we could. Um, swap out those sorts of restrictions with more targeted interventions and things like testing and contact tracing. Um, but unfortunately, our testing challenges persist. And, um, you know, even in places where we have 
adequate numbers of tests. It's still taking a long time to get test results back. And that really hinders the impact of those inter those case-based interventions, those more targeted interventions that are less um, blunt of a tool than, you know, the overall restrictions are. Well, and unfortunately, as we have data that show that there are just certain environments that are particularly good at spreading the virus and restaurants and bars, unfortunately, seem to fall in that category. So it's it's a hard prospect to, to look ahead and say it's completely safe to just lift all restrictions. We're talking to Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, who is, among other things, the lead epidemiologist for the Johns Hopkins Testing Insights Initiative. Yeah, and I don't know whether whether it's too late to talk about a thing like this. But one of the things that I thought early on as we started to look at the economic um, toll that the, this disease was taking, especially in the form of unemployment, was, wow, we, you can sort of treat this like the New Deal, too. What do you need? Well, you really do need a lot of contact tracers. You need a lot of them. Uh, and I know Johns Hopkins has an online training course. And it seemed to me one of the things that the federal government could have done is said, we know you're out of work because <laughs> you're you are a bartender and the bars closed right now would you be interested in doing this we can train you up really fast i mean i don't know how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of contact tracers we need but you know just for the same reason we were talking about the pcr test boy if somebody is pcr positive the next thing you want to know is who have they been in touch with you know who could they have given it to who might even have a fresher hotter case uh, of covid-19 and i don't think we really have the capacity to do that, not nationwide. No, we still don't have the workforce, but I actually think even more worrisome. I mean, yes, we need the contact tracers, but even in places where there are fairly robust contact tracing capabilities, we're seeing restrictions in the sense that, particularly right now, I mean, with the, the average age of the new cases being what it is, it's actually younger folks now that are um, in many places driving transmission. And if you're in your 20s or 30s and you get you test positive, um, you may not have any symptoms, um, and you're asked by public health authorities to, you know, reveal your contacts. Um, we're, we're hearing about a lot of hesitation to do that, mm -hmm. um, in part because, first of all, uh, you know, giving up your friends <laughs> and means that they will probably have to stay home for two weeks, and they may not earn an income in the amount of time that they are they are asked to stay home. So. I think in addition to like not having the workforce to do this contact tracing, we don't have the incentives to support people who will need to stay home. You know, people shouldn't have to choose between an income and and um, and protecting public health. Um, it would be nice if there were some kind of you know short term unemployment insurance or something along the lines for people who have been asked to stay home due to contact tracing or or case isolation efforts. Um, we just need to to recognize that there are real disincentives out there for people to get tested because that may mean that they don't get to show up to work and, and earn a paycheck um, or to, to participate in contact tracing. Right. And I think that becomes especially true, you know, when we start talking about the kind of Michael Mina driven idea of, you know, having these lick a stick or, you know, whatever these these home tests where you could test yourself maybe three times a week or or whatever. And so be just be screening yourself all the time. But, you know, for the kind of person that you're talking about or just the kind of person who's a low wage worker, paycheck to paycheck kind of worker, that person would have a real disincentive for taking the home test for fear of having a positive and and. 
with a positive still might have some reluctance to admit the positive since they don't really have any money. It seems to me one of the things that the federal government ultimately also needs to do is to promise to make that person whole during a quarantine. You got a low wage job and you take a home test and it tells you you're positive and you confirm that and you need to be out for 14 days or whatever will keep you whole. But I think until we have that, compliance is going to be tricky in the way that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, these are certainly things we've learned in the, the setting of, you know, global health, <laughs> that when people have financial disadvantages, um, you know, and they're exacerbated by public health interventions, um, you know, your the compliance is going to be low. So we need to figure out a way to help people comply. And, um, you know, it's not just financial. It's also some people need help. They live alone. They need someone to get them groceries. They need someone to, you know, get them, take their dog to the vet, whatever. I mean, people need help staying home and, um, it's not charity. It's a, it's a, it's a strategy, um, to make sure that the people we worry about the most, the people who we think may be contagious, um, are able to do that so that they don't transmit their infection to others. All right. We're going to stop there because we have um, certainly uh, had a terrific conversation with Dr. Jennifer Nizzo. We're very lucky to have her, senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Uh, Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the conversation. Okay, so here we go. We're going to take a break and we're really excited to have Jelani Cobb on the other side of that break uh, to talk about policing the police. And you feel But hold on all right, we're back. We've been trying to get this guy on the show for years, so it's exciting uh, that we do have him. Jelani Cobb is a staff writer uh, at The New Yorker and a professor of journalism at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. His most recent book is The Substance of Hope, Barack Obama and the Paradox of Progress. Uh, his documentary, Policing the Police 2020, a part of the Frontline series, will air tomorrow, actually on CPTV here in Connecticut at 9 p.m. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. And can I just say that I like had a little moment uh, when I heard the the ad for the Howard, Harriet Beecher Stowe house? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because when I lived, I don't know if you all know this, but I lived yes. in Hartford. Yeah, I lived in Hartford for three or four years. Uh, and uh, when I first moved there, I lived across the street from the Stowe house, mm. you know, in the uh, Mark Twain um, apartments. And so... Yeah, uh, I I missed that place. <laughs> yeah, we might have been neighbors. I I lived up this up the street in the Woodland House. But um, and as yeah. long as we're exchanging pleasantries, I think I detected on this documentary that you're left-handed. Are you left-handed? I am, in fact, left-handed. Yeah. You yeah. must be left-handed too. Yes, exactly. So we are both Jedi Knights. Okay, so but we find, but we find each other. Like <laughs> if I'm in a room, instinctively I look around yeah. and check to see how many other lefties are in the room. So right. the fact that you made that observation said to me, oh, okay, I must be dealing with another lefty. 
Right. Well, actually, you know, I, my roommate in college for three years, a guy named Ken Jennings, a black football player uh, for the college, uh, and I guess I have to say the college, which is Yale. And so when the whole Calhoun College thing came out, the fact that we had a residential college named after John C. Calhoun, I mean, just a few years ago, I got in touch with him. I said, like, I didn't really ever process that in the 70s when we were in college, that there was a college named after that Calhoun. Did you know that? And he said, Colin, it's a little bit like being left-handed, you know? <laughs> because <laughs> If you're left-handed, you notice a lot of stuff about left-handed. Because, right, exactly. And if you're black, you notice a lot of stuff. That, Imagine that, how I am. I'm a black left-handed, left-handed guy. Yeah, I'm just so paying is he. attention to everything all the time. Right. So I, I want to. So this documentary kind of takes place in both 2016 and pretty close to the present. It's kind of got both things in it. I want to ask you about a couple of moments in it. Uh, I want to start with something that I believe is part of that kind of 2016 narrative. This is when you're doing a ride along with a bunch of anti-gang cops. They are, I think, for the most part, if not entirely, uh, police of color, persons of color, and yeah. they they're tough guys. Um, and uh, there's a moment where they stop a pedestrian who to my mind, first of all, looks very harmless and isn't doing anything as far as I can tell. I'm going to let you kind of take the story from there. But this is the, I'm talking about the guy who they say is pulling yeah. away from them. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, so uh, we were out with the gang unit and in the gang unit would do these what they called uh, field inquiries, uh, which was really a euphemism for stopping and frisking. Uh, and stopping and frisking is a euphemism in its own right, because that didn't really describe what was happening. Hmm. Uh, in in some instances, they would, you know, stop someone and pull the waistband of their underwear away from their body and look down hmm. um, in the front and look down in the back. So really looking at people's private parts in public on the street. Uh, and in this particular instance, there was a gentleman walking down the street. Uh, he'd gone to the neighborhood bar, had a few drinks, was walking home. And this is at night, uh, unmarked car, plain clothes officers, uh, four of them converge on him at once. Uh, and they grab him. He backs up, pulls away from them, which leads to all four of them essentially tackling him on someone's lawn. Uh, and you know they're saying, stop pulling away, stop pulling away. And at the same time, you know, this person has no way of knowing that he's not being attacked, uh, that he's not going to be uh, harmed or being robbed or, or whatever. Uh, and so it is a, a moment that kind of highlights the casual use of force that was happening, the casual brutality uh, that was happening in the police department in 2015. So these cops also, they have this kind of heuristic kind of Potter Stewart. I know it when I see it um, yeah. index yeah. for like, when are they going to do something like that? This, well, I mean, that guy's body language language is not, it, it's pretty subtle pulling away the, the way it looked to me. So there's another scene. I, I, I couldn't tell whether it was more closer to the president or from there, where you're, you have a long interview with the head of the police union. This is all in Newark, New Jersey, if I haven't said that already. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you're sort of talking to him about this scene kind of question like you know when and why do police do this and he says well they only really do it you know we have very specific reasons why you can do this when you can do this and i'm thinking well we already know that's not true (laughs) and then you show him a different clip and there's a guy being pinned to the ground and i think at one point you can hear this guy say i'm not resisting uh and they're like still like clubbing one of them is clubbing them with his hand uh, and talk a little bit about that and, and how the uh, union guy reacted to that. 
Well, yeah, he, he, there was really not a line that he would say. Well, I will say he, he said that the George Floyd killing was indefensible. Um, but everything else that we talked about, he kind of defaulted to defending the police. Um, and there really didn't seem to be like a willingness to countenance the idea that the police might be part of the problem or certain police policies or, or practices might be part of the, the problem um, in, in their own right. Uh, and so one of the things I think that um, we also saw was that, you know, police might precipitate a situation uh, and then respond to the fact that the person was resisting them. So like the case we just talked about, the person was pulling away, which would be a natural instinct, uh, you know, for someone who thinks that they're being attacked and doesn't know that there are people surrounding them. Uh, but in each instance, in any of those kinds of uh, kind of judgment call situations, the default was to presume that the police officer was right. Uh, and, and so what I saw in that was a kind of that intractability meant that there was no room to recognize how these actions were playing with the public uh, and with the people who were on the receiving end of them. Uh, and so that was, if anything was a kind of microcosm of what the bigger conflict around policing was, it was in those interactions. Right. Uh, so we're going to play a clip from the documentary. Uh, this is Larry Ham, founder of the People's Organization for Progress. I should say that one of the things that's clear when you watch this, which I hope you will, is it's not all about the problem. It's all also very much about people working in various ways uh, for solutions and for progress. But uh, here he is telling our guest Jelani Cobb why the sight of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin's face bothered him even more than the knee on George Floyd's neck. Mm. He looked straight at the cameras. He wasn't worried about no cameras. You know why? Because they know that 99% of police brutality cases don't end in a conviction. See, when it's clear to them that there will be an immediate price to pay for unjustly taking the lives of human beings and unjustly brutalizing people that you're gonna lose your badge, you're gonna lose your gun, you're gonna lose your job, you're gonna lose your pension, and you might lose your freedom if you're convicted. When they understand that, I guarantee you that there will be a precipitous decline in police brutality cases. So, and so a lot of the documentary, uh, Jelani Cobb, is about how do you get to that point? How do you get to that point where, because, the truth is, if there were things in almost any profession, even for us as journalists, you know, that we felt protected us in ways that we wanted to be protected, we wouldn't willingly give them up. And we're certainly seeing the police are not going to willingly give them up. And we've been through this in Connecticut, and the, there's a, a much more broad kind of police accountability passed this year. But I mean, the police were like like yelling at the state legislators in one case, spitting at one of the majority leaders of the legislature. Um, so talk a little bit about the signs that you saw that that there's another way to do this, a way to do this that might satisfy some of Mr. Ham's concerns. Yeah. And, and so you know, what he was talking about, what Mr. Ham was talking about was uh, the reality that it is very difficult uh, for uh, police officers uh, to be indicted in cases where they've used force and you know, people believe that it's an excessive use of force. Uh, it's very difficult. Very often, uh, you know, other kinds of civilian complaints don't culminate in uh, consequences for police. 
Uh, and you know, there is a, a, the legal doctrine of qualified immunity, uh, which means that there really aren't a lot of checks on what police can and can't do. I mean, there's the law, but the consequences for breaking the law are different for them than they would be for other people. And some of that is for legal reasons. Some of that is for contractual reasons in terms of what the police unions have negotiated. Uh, and some of them are um, for social reasons, societal reasons. People don't like uh, the idea. They don't like to countenance the idea that police might be doing something wrong uh, because it consequently leaves them feeling unsafe. Uh, and I'm talking about the, the broader uh, public. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what the documentary did when we were looking at the kind of solutions was that a lot of you know, what people were advocating um, were mechanisms to enhance police accountability. Uh, the, uh, the fight in Newark for a civilian review board that had subpoena power, which is something that's gone on and you know, just a legal challenge, uh, just uh, struck that down. And so they weren't able to get that. Or uh, the changes in the policies around uh, making complaints. Uh, at one point, if you wanted to complain about a police officer uh, with internal affairs, you had to go to a police precinct, which obviously uh, is a deterrent. Uh, and then in some egregious instances, uh, the lines between internal affairs and police were so porous uh, that people made complaints and would sometimes receive a visit from the officer they complained about uh, because they'd find out about it. And so those were the things that uh, people, the reform-minded people in Newark were really attempting to address. And that's what we were looking at, uh, the various uh, you know, small victories that people have made around those things in the last several years. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Jelani Cobb. We'll tell you more about what's going to be on Frontline tomorrow uh, when we get back. Trade my 4x4 for four, four, GC3, ain't no more fearless feet. I gave him chance, a chance, a chance again. I even told him, please. I find it crazy the police to shoot you and know that you dead, but still tell you to freeze. Fucked up, I seen what I seen. I guess that mean hold him down if he say he can't breathe. It's too many mothers just grieving. They're killing us for no reason. Been going on for too long to get even. Throw us in cages like dogs and hyenas. I went to court and they sent me to prison. My mama was pushed when they said I can't leave. First I was drunk, then I sobered up quick when I heard all that time. We're back. And I have to say some thank yous. Thank you to Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio. She's making this whole thing happen uh, so that I can work remotely. And also remotely working is senior producer Betsy Kaplan, who put this episode together and put up with me lobbying for the little baby song that you were going out of that cut, out of that last uh, segment, um, and lots of other things that have to be put up with about me, uh, if that makes any sense. With us is Jelani Cobb, uh, amazing and wonderful writer for The New Yorker uh, and commentator generally. And yes, his documentary, Policing the Police 2020, will be on Frontline tomorrow night uh, here in this market and elsewhere. So um, actually, maybe before we uh, get back into conversation, and I see our time is a, a little bit shorter than I'd like it to be, uh, let's hear from Ross Baraka, one of the other major figures uh, in your documentary, someone you've known a long time, mayor of Newark. Uh, he's going to talk about this whole idea of defunding the police. I think defund is necessary, right? I think it's necessary to begin to uh, divert funding from police organizations to social services, other kind of things like that. Mm -hmm. I uh, so that, in public health, some people are sick. And because there's some people sick, you have to address them with doctors, right? Mm -hmm. You have to address sickness 
if the data says that if my father was involved in violent crime, I'm more likely to be involved in violent crime, if that's what the data is telling us, then we have to intervene so that the son and the grandson is not targeted by the police, mm -hmm. but is now targeted by people who are trying to give them social services to pull them out of a condition that they are almost uh, guaranteed to become a victim of violence and a perpetrator of violence mm -hmm. and treated as a public health crisis as opposed to the police response. So Jelani Cobb, uh, we want the police to be better. We want the D Department of Justice to be better at uh, seeing broad uh, violations of civil rights engaged in by police departments. But there's another way in which, you know, this can't all be hived off into those areas, that ultimately we as a community have to do something. And, and in the ways that he's talking about, we have to deploy other people with different kinds of skill sets to address some of the same problems. Sure. Uh, and I think that was one of the, the key uh, uh, thing, facts that we learned or the uh, key insights that we gained while we were there was that there is this distinction between public safety and policing. And it's easy to just passively assume that those two things are the same. But people in Newark, um, you know, particularly a, a gentleman by the name of Akila Shirelles, who mm. is over a community violence intervention team called the Newark Community Street Team really took pains to distinguish between those two things and saying that policing is, uh, you know, what happens after the fact, uh, but public safety is created by all the other institutions in a community. Uh, and so it is not a kind of responsiveness, you know, to problems, but a set of institutions and relationships with your city and your society that preclude those problems from arising in the first place. Uh, and so I think that's part of what uh, Mayor Baraka was talking about when he was saying treating violence as a public health problem uh, in the same way that you would, or at least it's kind of seen, unfortunately not always the case, uh, but the way that you would respond to a contagion, uh, we think that, you know, or they think uh, is the most effective means of addressing uh, violence in the community. So, yeah, um, you know, I read in The New Yorker recently, I'm sure you did, too, about the Powderhorn Safety Collective, uh, a group that monitors the neighborhood in which George Floyd was killed by local officers and where residents have made an informal pact not to call the police. So this is really one stretch beyond what you're seeing in Newark. This is a group that doesn't really have any kind of civil authority or sanction. These are people who've decided themselves okay, if we're not going to call the police, that means we have to do something else. We have to figure out what that something else is. We have to exercise a certain amount of vigilance uh, on our own parts and on behalf of the world we live in. How did, I mean, I was kind of encouraged by this idea. How did it strike you? Sure. I mean, it's, that's an interesting idea for the reason that um, being in and around, you know, lots of communities like the ones that we were in in Newark, uh, you very often have kind of those kinds of informal attacks happening among people uh, who are really concerned the police will exacerbate whatever problem they're called to respond to. Uh, and so, you know, I've been in lots of places where people have the idea like, you never call the police, you know, no matter what, don't call the police. Uh, and, you know, that obviously is a issue that has its own kind of built in um, shortcomings, but you can understand, I think in a bigger context, why people might draw that conclusion. Uh, in Newark, 
they are, I think, doing something a little bit different and different in that they're saying, uh, don't call the police, call this community organization. Uh, if there's anything that doesn't involve uh, the response to a significant act of violence, call us and let us mediate the situation. Let us try to come up with community uh, responses. Uh, let's see if we can have some sort of uh, informal mechanism by which the the core conflict can be repaired or made right uh, and bypass the need to respond to this problem legally. Yeah, we've only got a couple minutes left here, but Jelani Cobb, it seems to me that uh, another part of that is, and so you lived in Hartford. These days I live right over the line in West Hartford. You know, mm-hmm. I, we have to sort of, the police often wind up doing stuff that the community wants them to do. And by the community, in this case, I mean, for the most part, you know, white people in the suburbs see something or think they see something and or are alarmed by something. And their reaction is to roll up the window, hit the door locks and call 911 before they even 100 percent understand. So we get mad at the police, I think, justifiably sometimes. But I also think we excuse ourselves from being the person who called the police to say, you know, there's kind of a suspicious looking person yeah. over there. Maybe you could just talk that about is, that in the minute or so we got. That is absolutely true. And I think that's really an important insight because uh, if we look at the death of John Crawford, uh, who was an African-American who was killed in Ohio in a Walmart some years back, uh, he was looking at a BB gun that was for sale uh, at Walmart. Uh, looking, uh, He was debating about whether or not to purchase it and a white person in the store store saw it, got alarmed, called the police. The police come, you know, with the understanding that there's a person with a firearm menacing people in Walmart, uh, respond, and within moments, Mr. Crawford is shot dead. Mm-hmm. There's an issue with the policing there, but there's obviously also the fact that the police are being used as a vector to convey other people's racism. Okay, so this and may so, have to be a whole other show that we do because, frankly, we're out of time, and I shouldn't have yeah. asked you such a comprehensive question. But yeah, let's have it. Let's do it. now that we're both left-handed. I think you have to come back, and <laughs> that's, ha- yeah, that's a, a great reason to come back sometime. Right. So that's a, and we'll we'll start the conversation where we're ending it right now because I think it's a pretty big thing. But Jelani Cobb, thanks for being with us, and everybody Thank else, you. watch that documentary, "Policing the Police 2020" on Frontline tomorrow night. All right, we're done. Thanks to Betsy Thank Kaplan. You. Thanks to yeah, thanks to you, and thanks to my dog for barking in the middle of this very important uh, interview. <laughs> that was not helpful. Wonderland already started, but that's all the hell you talking about. So this red across our eyes symbolizes that the fact that we see the bloodshed going on in this country and it won't be overlooked. So we need to let the world know, and you need to know that silence is the enemy, and sound is the weapon.